Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin, a journalist with over two decades of experience. I started covering crypto six years ago, and as a senior editor at Forbes, was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full-time. Sign up for my newsletter, where you can read about how to pre-order my book, The Cryptopians, Idealism, Greed, Lies, and the Making of the First Big Cryptocurrency Craze. Head to UnchainedPodcast.com, and the sign-up for the email newsletter is right on the homepage. The Crypto.com app lets you buy, earn, and spend crypto all in one place. Earn up to 8.5% interest on your Bitcoin and 14% interest on your stablecoins. Paid weekly. Download the Crypto.com app and get $25 with the code LAURA. The link is in the description. Kuiper's Dynamic Market Maker, DMM, is the first DeFi protocol designed to adapt to market conditions to optimize fees, maximize returns, and enable extremely high capital efficiency for liquidity providers. Today's episode is sponsored by EY Blockchain. Ernst & Young is committed to supporting integration of the world's business ecosystems on the public Ethereum blockchain. Today's topic is whether Ethereum needs to worry about these ETH killers, the new generation of them, the prime examples being Solana and Binance Smart Chain. Here to discuss are Kane Warwick, founder of Synthetics, and Kyle Samani, managing partner at Multicoin Capital. Welcome, Kane and Kyle. Thanks for having us. Hey, Laura. Good to be back on the show. I'm looking forward to this. This will be a fun, spicy, spicy debate. Yeah, should be, should be good fun. Yeah. I know. I know. That was exactly what um, Kane and I were discussing when we were figuring out who his conversation partner should be. Yeah. So um, listeners should know that the impetus for this show was a recent tweet storm that Kane wrote up saying that he was concerned about the Solana and Binance Smart Chain communities, quote, genuinely gaining organic traction, much more so than, say, EOS or Tron of the last cycle. Kane, can you explain your thoughts more on this score? Yeah. So, you know, I, I think uh, back in 2017, 2018, uh, you know, Tron and, and EOS made a, a pretty decent attempt at generating some traction and, and getting, you know, smart contract developers to migrate. Um, you know, certainly EOS threw a lot of money uh, at that process. And we just saw that, you know, they didn't really get much traction. Obviously, it was a different part of the, the market cycle. It was a bear market. It was much harder to get, uh, you know, um, uh, traction back then. But what we're seeing now, um, you know, especially with the, the high gas prices on Ethereum, is that there's appears to be a bit of an opportunity for uh, chains like Solana and Binance Smart Chain to really start chipping away at the ETH dominance. And, you know, my, my thread was really about a bit of a wake-up call. I think that the ETH community can't just be oblivious to this, that, you know, this is actually happening and, and we need to at least consider uh, the momentum that these chains are getting. 
And Kyle, I'm just curious, do you um, agree with Kane's description? And I'm assuming that you would not be super concerned about this because <laughs> you have invested in both um, the Solana and uh, Binance. So what's your take on what you're seeing? Yeah, so I'll, I'll preface everything. I'll preface this kind of whole podcast episode by saying that Multicoin is, is quite long ETH. Uh, we're actually more long ETH than Bitcoin. Um, and we're even more long that than on Sol and, and Binance. Um, so yeah, we're, we're long kind of all of the, the, the primary subjects of this conversation. We have felt for a long time that the Ethereum approach to scaling was, was just not going to be sufficient. Not that it won't work, but it, it will just not be enough. Um, and two years ago, that was a kind of a fuzzy claim, but it, there just wasn't enough kind of clarity on how exactly it was going to work. Um, but, but our intuition was that it just wasn't going to get there. And, you know, fast forward today and, we have a reasonable sense of how the ZK rollups are going to work and how the optimistic rollups are going to work. And we can kind of sort of reason about how the interoperability with, between these things will work. Um, and I, I feel more convicted than ever that the, the scaling solutions that are here today for the Ethereum ecosystem are, are, are simply not enough. I think Solana is, is not sufficient by probably two to three orders of magnitude. I think what the Ethereum ecosystem is proposing is by five or six orders of magnitude away from being sufficient. But I've just always thought you have to just try other angles and, and see how where these things go. Um, and, and the primary constraint is just parallelism. Um, and uh, I think that's super important. I think it's very important for the long-term health of all decentralized finance and all of crypto to, to make sure we maximally explore um, the full design space and trade-offs of these different ways to scale, um, as opposed to being dogmatic about which, which set of ideologies is, is the right approach. We're bullish all three approaches, obviously, to different degrees. Um, but we certainly think all three have a lot of room to run over the next 12 to 24 months. And when you mention that about parallelism, are you saying because you just feel like sharding is not the way to go? Or what did you mean by that? If you look at roll-ups, roll-ups specifically break what I call logical centralization, meaning right in a, in a roll-up, if you have a, a transaction happening in the base layer, the, the base layer doesn't know what roll-ups are. Um, it's actually just not a logical concept that exists in the base layer. Um, and similarly, if you're in a base, if you're in a roll-up, roll-ups don't know what other roll-ups are either. Um, and so, um, there are ways to bridge those things together into semi-ish seamless ways to make them interact with each other, but it by definition requires some additional developer tax. Um, that developer tax, whether it's some sort of state channel interface over Connext or something over Thorchain or something over some of the, whatever, Starkware is doing some stuff and ZK Sync guys are doing some stuff. There's a whole bunch of people working on different theoretical, you know, ways to bridge all of these things together. Um, I have no particular views of which of those methodologies is best. In fact, there probably isn't a best. They all have different trade-offs. And so as you look at how kind of this heterogeneous layer two world is, is going to evolve, um, there's going to be different layer twos and there's going to be multiple instances of the same layer two tech um, and then different you know, tech techs and making all those things interoperate across zero knowledge flavors, optimistic flavors, different latency flavors, um, depending on like what the user's preferences are what the, the gas fees are at the moment in the, in the network. There's just a tremendous amount of complexity in, in all of these things. To be clear, none of these problems are intractable. Like they're all by definition tractable problems. Um, but the amount of developer tax it will create for developers to provide a good user experience will be very, very substantial. By definition, that means developers will spend a pretty large percentage of their time and energy dealing with all of what I'll just call this like plumbing crap instead of like actually building good user facing applications. And so as I think about kind of long, long term horizon development, I think that that's very concerning of just like developers are going to have to spend too much time thinking about this stuff. 
And, and so th that's kind of the primary concern. And so do you have an idea for how Ethereum could scale in a better fashion? Or is it just simply that you think it goes back to that scalability trilemma. Like, you know, obviously Binance Smart Chain and Solana are more centralized. So is it just simply that you think at this point, the best solution is just, just to have a more centralized chain and to compromise on decentralization? So, so I think there's, uh, uh, the scalability trilemma is, is basically not, not correct for the most part. And degrees of correctness matter. So like today, Ethereum people will tell you it runs on a $500 laptop that that's not true. It, like, look at the gas limit now. I think it's 15 million, if I'm not mistaken, per block. You're like, that's not running on a $500 laptop. Like, it's just not going to happen. A $1,000 laptop is, is more realistic, and that's probably generous. If you look at Solana today, Solana's running on, like, call it a $3,000 server, $3,500 server. So what we're talking about here is, like, a 3 to 4x difference in price on, like, what hardware you need to do it. So let's be clear about what that, you know, just in absolute dollar terms what that means. Um, and it's not 20x difference or 50x difference. It's 3 to 4. The second thing that matters is then to say is, okay, obviously, if, if the hardware requirements are higher, that by definition, there are fewer computers in the world of, of a higher hardware, of the higher hardware standard, but like to what degree fewer computers? And then like, and then what's the diminishing marginal return of having like, as you go from 1,000 nodes to 10,000 nodes, you get some marginal degree of censorship resistance. As you go from 10,000 nodes to 100,000 nodes, you are by definition getting less censorship resistance. Um, this explicitly has diminishing returns. And so... When I look at, you know, people say, like, you're compromising on, on the, the trilemma, it, like, it's, like, true in a very theoretical sense, but, like, in a practical sense, like, does it matter? And, and like, to the degree that, like, the hardware cost matters, it's, like, okay, is, is $3,000, is that, is that the delta? Or is it, like, something else? The Bitcoin and Ethereum communities both had very strong ideological beliefs on, you know, let's call it hardware costs as, like, the primary constraint, um, which is fine. Like, those, those beliefs are reasonable. But, like, there was no godforsaken, like, reason to believe that those were, like, the right bounds to use. Um, and I think it's actually quite important to test what those bounds should be. Whether the number is 4,000, whether the number is 25,000, whether the number is 200,000, um, probably shouldn't be 200,000, probably shouldn't be 25,000. Below 4,000, it's, like, pretty, pretty great to me. And it's, it's not that clear to me that the answer has to be below 1,000. And Kane, what do you make of what Kyle's saying and uh, his take on your uh, tweet swarm? I mean, look, you know, I, I think uh, broadly it's it's accurate, you know, and and I don't disagree that there is going to be a lot of uh, thrashing. I mean, we're in the middle of this right now, right? Like the Synthetics project has spent upwards of you know seventy five percent of its resources over the last six months working on scaling, right? Um, now, you know, that's an investment that we decided was worthwhile making and, and it's an investment that's going to pay off for the rest of the community because, you know, we're going through a lot of, uh, issues that other people then subsequently won't. Chainlink's doing the same thing with us. Um, you know, there's a couple of other projects, Uniswap, et cetera, that are kind of taking the brunt of this work, but I don't think it and, goes away. And just away. to be clear, are you talking about, um, I'm talking working about, with optimism? Working with optimism, yeah, to, you know, to get through optimistic rollups and, and get through the process of of, of working out how to onboard from L1 to L2, um, you know, contract modifications, et cetera. So, you know, there is definitely a lot of overhead there. And that doesn't even speak to what happens once it works, right? And once we have L1 and L2, and once we have multiple L2s, and, you know, all of the, the interactions, et cetera, like, it is going to take up a lot of resources, I think. I suppose my, my view is that it's just 
by necessity a thing that's going to have to happen, right? Um, you know, when SBF and I uh, had our, our debate a year ago now or nine months ago, you know, one of the things we sort of uh, talked about was this idea that like, yes, maybe if everyone could converge on a single solution, um, you know, we could avoid fragmentation and, and avoid you know, dealing with all these multiple layers and all that stuff. It's just not going to happen, right? Like, you know, as much as we might want that to be the case, it's just not going to. So, um, you know, we need to be realistic and, and accept that there will be some level of fragmentation um, in, in this process. And it is going to be overhead for engineers and, and developers in the space and people building in the space. Um, but I, I think it's it's kind of a necessary process that, w- that we need to go through. Um, and then I, I, to the second point around uh, sort of, decentralization and, and what the threshold of hardware is. I think there was an interesting kind of thing that you slipped in there, which was, you know, a $3,500 server in a data center somewhere. That's not exactly, you know, the the kind of expectation I think we have around like running an Ethereum node, right? Like a $1,000 laptop or a $500 laptop, you know, there are, there are other requirements to run a Solana node that are maybe over and above commodity hardware, commodity access to data availability or whatever that, that I think are pretty critical in order for that throughput to be achievable. Um, and I think running everything inside a data center or multiple data centers or, or whatever um, is like not just a, a quantitative change. I think it's a qualitative change. Like if I can't run a, a node in my house because, you know, my, my bandwidth is not sufficient to you know, my cable modem or whatever, that puts a severe constraint on who can actually participate in the network, which I think is important. It's an important thing to to note. Well, so let's now just talk about kind of the two main ETH killers um, of the latest vintage that everybody's been talking about. How would you guys characterize how Binance Smart Chain and Solana have kind of filled the gaps that Ethereum is leaving with its high gas fees and you know, it's issues with scaling. I, I think, you know, Binance Smart Chain has taken a very smart approach. Like everything that Binance does is very smart. They're a very smart and efficient organization. It's just they may not be aligned with what the Ethereum community, for example. And in fact, I mean, they're not, right? Like, you know, Binance is, is a, a company that is, you know, trying to maximize profit, right? And and they're very effective at it. Um, and I, so I think that the, the Binance Smart Chain traction that they're getting is not necessarily at the expense of Ethereum. I mean, I think it, it, it probably is pulling some liquidity away, but I think it's liquidity that right now is priced out realistically, right? There's there's obviously some additional incremental loss, but at the moment, it's basically people that are priced out that are using Binance Smart Chain. Um, but, you know, you can very quickly spin up the same code bases and, and you know, clone stuff or, or make minor modifications to get it running on BSC. So it's just going to happen, right? It's just a realistic thing. And it's, you know, that's where I say, I think that the fact that Ethereum has taken longer to scale than we would have liked has created this market opportunity for someone to do that. The fact that Binance are the smart people that are doing it, you know, it makes sense that it would be Binance, right? I think Solana is is different in that it's much more of an existential threat to Ethereum. Um, because this question of wonky considerations for the average person around how decentralized is it, what you know, what hardware can you run it on, what are the you know requirements, etc. The average person doesn't care that much, right? I think the average person, if they looked at Ethereum and Solana versus BSC, they'd probably say, like, yes, I understand that this is a fairly centralized 
network and it's run by a single entity effectively um, and and they can make a distinction there i think it's much harder for the average person to make a distinction between ethereum and solana and so i think solana is a much larger threat uh to ethereum and and you know is something that the ethereum community needs to be mindful of that you know you can lose market share like leaders fall behind all the time in, in especially you know in nascent phases of, of tech revolutions, right? It's very easy for, for someone to, to fall behind. And we just need to keep ourselves uh, accountable and make sure that we're aware of it. We can't just hand wave it away and say, oh, Solana is not, you know, a, a threat to Ethereum because of X, Y, or Z, you know, ideological view that we might have. Um, I think it's really important. And just to go back earlier, when you were talking about how easy it is for developers to build on a Binance Smart Chain, it's because it's Ethereum compatible. So exactly. it, it's literally like almost like a copy paste type thing. Yeah. Um, however, so it's fascinating that you say actually Solana is the bigger threat because Solana is not uh, Ethereum virtual machine compatible. So why do you think that Solana is the bigger threat? Uh, I mean, again, you know, I think it's it's that distinction between most people can differentiate between Ethereum and a Binance Smart Chain. I don't know if most people can can differentiate between uh, Ethereum and Solana. I think also there's another barrier, which is, you know, if anyone can just copy paste code from Ethereum to, to Binance Smart Chain, you get some interesting second order effects of, you know, things blowing up and rug pulls and all kinds of crazy stuff, right, which undermines that ecosystem. I think the barrier to entry of having to actually write your own code in Solana means by definition, you get better engineers, you get better teams, they're, they're more credible teams, they're going to be able to take that code and develop it further. And it's just an ecosystem that's going to be much more competitive with Ethereum, realistically. Oh, okay. So I see. So you're saying it's going to attract developers as opposed to like right now, Binance Smart Chain might just attract more users who are priced out of Ethereum, but maybe not so much developers. And that's why Solana is the bigger threat. Is that is that it? Yeah, I, I think so. I think, you know, there is a filter in in Solana where like you genuinely can't just take, you know, Solidity and, and drop it in and, and run it, right? Like you need to actually rewrite smart contracts from scratch. And, and that means you need to I, I have a better understanding, not a perfect understanding necessarily. And there's definitely some clone projects on Solana that have kind of taken code and, and just ported it across. Uh, but I think that in general, it's not as easy, which means that you have a filter and you get better engineers and better teams. Okay. And Kyle, uh, obviously, <laughs> Kane and I covered a lot with that. Yeah, so um, yeah. <laughs> you can kind of respond to Well, no, I just I was asking some follow ups because I was curious. So go ahead and respond to whatever you'd like. Yeah, so I, I agree with almost everything Kane just said. And as someone who obviously has spoken to a lot of Ethereum projects over the last 12 months and said, hey, do you want to port to Solana? I've actually seen the um, both ideological challenges and engineering challenges in, in getting them to do that. And um, like, you know, last, let's call it last September, October, uh, I thought I was being successful. And I since realized I failed completely. Like, I think my hit rate was actually zero. <laughs> Again, there's partly ideological reasons. And then as Kane alluded to, it's actually more important as engineering reasons. Um, one thing I've observed across the Ethereum community is you have these engineering teams who are all kind of oriented around Solidity, um, and Solana is, is built on Rust. Rust is actually, in, in basically every way, actually a, a modern and better language. It's just intellectual and kind of uh, tool chain firepower behind it because it's just an enormous kind of global global thing. But most Solidity devs don't know Rust and vice versa. I think it's been very logistically difficult for Ethereum-based engineering organizations to you know figure out how to hire, grow, augment their teams, and then and then kind of manage to you know side-by-side -side teams. I think it's just a logistically kind of difficult thing to do. 
Um, so concur with everything Kane said there. The key thing that, that kind of gets Kane's comments about kind of existential threat, I think, are accurate. And I, I think this kind of all gets down to like the ideological beliefs around basically like what degree of weak subjectivity is sufficient in these systems. I would argue everything in the world basically is like weakly subjective. Um, and what I mean by that is like the Bitcoin maximalist view is you need to be able to um, verify every single transaction from Genesis in 2009 all the way to today. And if you can't verify every single transaction yourself, then like the system is bad and evil. And that's like the purely objectivist view. Um, but I think that's just an unnecessary bar to hold any of these systems to because like your life is weakly subjective. What, what do I mean by that? Um, well, first, like you read the history books and like you don't actually know what happened 500 years ago. Like it's just been like some guy wrote it down and that guy passed it on to his kids and that guy passed it on to his kids. And like you don't actually know. So like even like basic concepts like history, right, are, are by definition weakly subjective. Um, but even on like a, on a more practical basis, like I'm in a building right now. The two of you are also in buildings right now. Like there is a roof over your head. There were architects that designed the building. And like you're generally not worried the roof is going to collapse and kill you. And like you get in a car and like there's a bunch of a pistons firing and it's literally you lighting stuff on fire and it's exploding. And like you generally don't care or think about it. And like you don't, my point is you don't have to verify all of these things yourself. Right. So, so the world works on a weekly subjective basis where you don't need to verify everything. The question in my mind is what degree of week of subjectivity are, is okay for some sort of global permissionless financial system? And like, one view is I have to be able to run my own node, uh, and that, and the, and the dollar cost and let's say bandwidth requirements have to be below some threshold. Let's say, I don't know, it's a thousand dollars and I don't know, hundred megabits per second or whatever. Pick, pick your numbers. I, I think that's probably too restrictive. M- my intuition is that like as long as you can get to like somewhere between 10,000 and 100,000 around the world, it's enough that all of the other 7 billion people know that like those other people are sufficiently honest. And sufficiently well intentioned. And remember, that's going to be organizations like Coinbase and like FTX. Like, there's going to be a ton of like well known, you know, like reputable institutions and not just like guys, you know, and on guys in their basement. And, and so, as long as you have a sufficient number of them who are distributed around the world who all concur on the same consensus set, like what, what are you getting as you go from, let's say, 20,000 nodes to, to 2 million nodes? And, and that, that extra degree of censorship resistance and that extra degree of of inclusion to me, well, I mean, I would, I would love it to have it. Uh, the, the forced engineering trade-offs it makes, I, I find to be, um, in terms of gas cost, in terms of latency, in terms of then all these other weird secondary effects on DevX and UX, uh, I find those, that, that kind of to be the, the threshold for the trade-off. Or, and, and so, yeah, it's an open question, but I think as Kane's alluding to, like, that's kind of the existential open question. I think most people in crypto have taken for granted that the answer to that question was like in this pretty narrow range. And I think Solana's opened a lot of people's eyes to say, hey, maybe the range is a little bit wider of like what is actually the right answer. And that's kind of what we're seeing happen right now. So one thing that I want to explore a little more here is um, just, you know, how Binance Smart Chain has actually gotten a lot more traction early on than Solana. Like it's just fascinating. Both of you, I think, view Solana as um, something that could really be more of an Ethereum killer than, than Binance Smart Chain. And yet... You know, Solano really does not at the moment have the same kind of traction that even Binance Smart Chain does or, you know, has had at different times over the last few months. Like, you know, there was a period where, for instance, among the different automated market makers, PancakeSwap actually did have higher volume than Uniswap, um, obviously not with 
Uniswap V3, that's not the case. But um, can you just tell me kind of like how you see this playing out in the short term since it is at the moment Binance Smart Chain that has posed kind of more of a threat to Ethereum? I mean, my view, I guess, is that uh, BSC is kind of an anomaly, right? It's a bit of a blip. It's There's a moment in time where uh, Ethereum scaling has been slow enough and and you know the amount of activity that's been generated on the chain is and i mean i don't i think you know this is one of the things that i think the the point of that thread was about was that like we need to kind of not be so oblivious to these things right i think there were a lot of people in the Ethereum community that thought you know l1 probably can handle most of the activity that we want for the foreseeable future and yeah it's important that we scale but it's not like an existential threat we're not going to get caught out and we've been caught out like there's way too much activity to the point where there's an overflow of activity that should be on Ethereum that has just drifted off into this other chain, right? Um, and that's just a, a missed opportunity, I think, for the Ethereum community uh, completely. Does that get pulled back in when you have rollups and and you know things like Polygon and and you know uh, zero knowledge uh, scaling solutions that are much sort of better and at scale? Yes, I think that all of that activity that's happening in Binance Smart Chain. To a large extent, the vast majority of it will come back over once once uh, you know um, the gas prices are, are low enough on on these other solutions. I, I think where Solana differs is that you know again it's uh, it's going to be a harder road for them to scale and to get you know activity to come across because it's not just as easy to kind of you know port something across. You can't just do the pancake swap thing, right? Someone needs to build the pancake swap of uh, of Solana and it needs to be built from scratch in Rust, and that's just harder to do, um, and and it's just harder to kind of transfer that across. So I think you know my my sense is that Binance Smart Chain will maybe lose some relevance uh, once we get scaling. Um, whereas Solana, I think once it gets momentum, it's going to be hard to unwind that because they're building a parallel ecosystem with different engineers, different skill sets, different you know approaches, and they have really taken a, a you know to Kyle's point. They've accepted that there is maybe a wider range uh, of, um, you know, censorship resistance, if you will, right? If if that's where it kind of ultimately comes down to, that is acceptable, and that you can have, you know, fewer nodes, and it's probably fine, and the vast majority of people don't care, as long as there's some people who care. Um, you know, people are going to, you know, sort of be happy to to trust those people that do care as long as they know that there's sufficient number of them and what is that number and what's sufficient you know i didn't know that this was going to evolve devolve into like an epistemological debate but i think it's a good point right like if there's not some answer right that the ethereum community and bitcoin community have like gotten right necessarily right like we don't know what the market will bear the market might be willing to bear much more because they're not as ideologically concerned as as we are The, the market might be very happy to have a much wider range of answers to that question. Kyle, did you want to add anything? Yeah, I think the other thing I would add that I think is important to think about is stability and ability to project how things are going to work in the future. So like gas fees is like one obvious problem, and that's kind of the most salient one you see at the moment. But I would actually argue that that's not the biggest problem. The biggest problem is if you're going to be Twitter or you're going to be any bank or Nav or Reddit or whoever, it doesn't matter. Pick your big company of choice. And you want to say, okay, we're going to like go 
embed crypto in a fundamental way into our application, right? Whether it's with some social tokens or you embed, Bit, embed BitCloud or some trading, th- whatever. I don't really care. Something. And you have 100 million daily active users on your app, right? And you have 100 million today and you reasonably expect you're going to grow over the next three years. You'll have 200 million users in three years or, or whatever. You need to have a very strong understanding of how the system works at the current moment. And actually, are you more importantly, you need to understand how you expect the underlying system to continue to evolve over the next two or three or four years at a minimum um, before you make any sort of, of large technical commitment like that. And the, the biggest challenge the Ethereum ecosystem faces actually today is that it is actually impossible to answer the question, what does a scaled Ethereum application look like in 24 months? It's not, it's not that I don't know or that Kane doesn't know. It's that it's actually not possible to know because you have too many things that are interfering with each other right now from these various optimistic roll-up flavors and zero-knowledge flares and state channels. And just, there's just too many things that are all about to run into each other, um, and no one knows how it's going to all play out. And, and so you just can't make any projections. Um, you can be optimistic and say, I think it will get figured out, and that, that's a reasonable thing to believe. Um, some people believe it with higher probabilities than others, but you, you can't know with any degree of certainty how do how does an application actually function on Ethereum at some level of scale in 24 months? It just is not possible to know. And I, I'm not sure when it will be possible. 24 maybe um, one, it may be 12, 12. I think is pretty optimistic. Um, 24 is reasonable, but it could be 36 months before before that answer is is really knowable. And being able to provide stability over a long horizon for large companies to um, you know commit to is extraordinarily important. Because when you have a large user base, the number one thing you can't do is just screw up your entire application. I'd say the reason I'm actually most optimistic Solana is it provides that stability in that, um, uh, in, like in terms of just how does it scale? And then also in terms of just like the core um, development environment, which is like it's based on the Rust community. And it seems like Rust is going to like slowly replace C++ as like powering the guts of like everything in the world. I mean, the, the Linux, like Linus Torvald has recently said, like they're going to start rewriting parts of the Linux kernel in Rust. And, and so, Kind of that degree of, of technical depth and kind of integration into just all software around the world. Like th- there's real deep important considerations here um, that, that Solana kind of naturally benefits from. All right. So we're going to talk a little bit about some very specific events over the next few years to see how this might play out. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. Today's episode is sponsored by EY Blockchain. Ernst & Young is committed to supporting integration of the world's business ecosystems on the public Ethereum blockchain. Join our fifth annual Blockchain Summit and Education Series on May 18th to 21st for a deep dive into zero-knowledge privacy technologies, accounting, and tax rules, as well as the future of finance. Sign up and learn more at ey.com slash global blockchain summit or blockchain.ey.com. Kyber's dynamic market maker, DMM, is a game changer in DeFi, being the first protocol designed to react to market conditions to optimize fees while providing extremely high capital efficiency for liquidity providers. Fees are adjusted dynamically based on market conditions to maximize returns and reduce the impact of impermanent loss. Liquidity providers can customize the pricing curve to create amplified pools that greatly improve capital efficiency and reduce trade slippage. Depositing tokens to earn fees is also fast and simple, with this liquidity easily accessible by dApps, aggregators, or other users. Visit dmm.exchange now. 
With over 10 million users, Crypto.com is the easiest place to buy and sell over 90 cryptocurrencies. Download the Crypto.com app now and get $25 with the code LAURA. If you're a hodler, Crypto.com Earn pays industry-leading interest rates on over 30 coins, including Bitcoin, at up to 8.5% interest and up to 14% interest on your stablecoins. When it's time to spend your crypto, nothing beats the Crypto.com Visa card, which pays you up to 8% back instantly and gives you 100% rebate for your Netflix, Spotify, and Amazon Prime subscriptions. There is no annual or monthly fees to worry about. Download the Crypto.com app and get $25 when using the code LAURA, L-A-U-R-A. The link is in the description. Back to my conversation with Kyle and Kane. So actually, one note before I ask my next question, um, Kyle, what you were saying about rest is interesting because as you know, I've been working on this book and um, what you were saying about it, replacing C++ reminds me of how um, Gavin Wood, when he left the Ethereum Foundation and started Parity, they chose to make their next client in Rust. And he, his previous client had been in C++. So um, yes, I've you know uh, heard a little bit about the benefits of that language. And um, it, I do you know see that there are developers who are going in that direction. Um, so let's just now talk about all these different layer twos because you're right. Right now, Ethereum is in this somewhat messy period with a lot of fragmented layer two scaling and different projects on different layer twos. So for both of you, how do you see Ethereum best navigating this period while um, we have these other competitors that are able to already handle more transactions per second? I mean, maybe I'm I'm being overly optimistic here. I think the the period of highest friction is probably the next six months uh, in terms of you know getting some level of consensus about where we should be trying to scale Ethereum-based uh, applications. I think one other consideration, though, to, to go back to what Kyle had said before, um, for a large organization is not just throughput. Like That's not the only consideration. I think there is an important consideration, which is you know this idea of credible neutrality. And yes, Ethereum might be fairly opaque in terms of you know what the roadmap looks like and, and what something will look like in, in 24 months or, or you know, three years. Um, but I think that at the moment, even if you ignore uh, maybe the fact that you know Solana is more centralized from a, a node perspective, it's far more centralized from an organizational perspective. You know, there is a a, a group of people sitting, you know, uh, in, in a couple of places around the world that are kind of driving the majority of uh, development. And I think Ethereum is in a very different place. And so if you're, if you're looking as a large organization that's trying to work out, you know, which platform do I believe is going to be, uh, you know, the, the best place for me to put resources into, I think we're already seeing that large scale, you know, particularly for financial applications, maybe less so for social things and, and your Twitter and, and Reddit and things like that. But certainly, you know, from financial applications, uh, Ethereum is the place that you go, you know, as long as you're not so concerned about throughput, you know, if you're trying to put 100 million users on on uh, something, that's probably not going to be viable. But when you're, you know, issuing a bond or something like that, you know, I think we're seeing that Ethereum, you know, they're not, you know, we don't have central banks issuing bonds on BSC, right, for, for various, you know, obvious reasons. Um, and, and so I think that ultimately what it comes down to is, 
can we get to a level of scalability where we start to see some traction? I don't think we're going to see Twitter fully decentralize itself in the near term anyway. Um, but if we see some social applications that are running on rollups or you know zero knowledge scaling solutions that are getting some level of traction, that will provide confidence, I suppose, in larger organizations, you know, to start to look into this, but it is going to be an incremental process. I don't think we just see a wholesale migration to any decentralized, you know, platform, whether it's Solana or Ethereum or, or BSC. Kyle, what do you think? I agree with kind of everything Kane said there. I think how does Ethereum kind of deal with this? Um, and I'm not sure what the answer to that is. Because the problem with Ethereum is that it's not a thing or a group of people. It's a whole bunch of different people in a whole bunch of different places who disagree with each other on a whole bunch of different things. So I'm not sure what you can do about it. And the reality is, is that in the long run, the experimentation going on now is, is necessary because you need to find the right set of trade-offs. And it's not clear what the right set of trade-offs um, are. And experimentation is the only way to figure that out. So, um, I mean, the best thing they can do is move as quickly as possible and like try and play nice together as, as best as possible. I, I think the other thing that I, I really think about here and I, is that like, what happens when you have an application that's like, well-known, like consumer-grade application that's well-known that there's like 30 million or 50 million daily users. So not like three, like 500 million daily users, but like 30 or 50 kind of scale. And what's what's the highest probability platform that that, app, if, if you assume that application has to exist at some point, which I can actually, I assume 100% probability that such an application will exist. Um, if, if I didn't, then I wouldn't have the job that I have. Then like, what's actually the highest probability location of where that application ends up living. Uh, the, on the surface, the answer is obviously Ethereum. But actually, if you peel and back and think about it a little bit more, I would actually argue the only answer is Solana. Um, because as Kane said, like the, the scaling is going to be incremental, which I, I agree with that, that statement. And, and so you've got all these people around the world looking at crypto prices and experimenting with stuff and playing with things. And they're all trying to figure out how to make stuff work. Um, and if you just assume your default is I have to have support for 50 million users, then you kind of limit your choices really fast. And, and so if one of those things starts to work in reasonably near future and gets to, you know, reasonable degree of scale, you know, like user scale, that's like widely recognized and, and understood. I think the relative perceptions will change really fast. The biggest surprise to actually multi-coin in the last nine months has been the price of ETH BTC. We were convinced BTC was going to outperform ETH this cycle because of the, we got these big institutions coming in were going to be buying BTC and not buying ETH. Uh, we thought they were going to be concerned about ETH2 and, and proof of stake. It's confusing and the monetary policy is undefined. And we really thought that that kind of degree of confusion was going to cause ETH BTC to go down. Uh, we were obviously dead wrong. ETH BTC has, has way outperformed our expectations. And so that's forced us to reconsider what are the marginal buyers caring about. Um, and they seem to be undervaluing the digital gold thesis and overvaluing the productive utility asset thesis of, of things that are productive for large numbers of users that do useful things. And, and so if you kind of just lean into that even further and say, okay, well, as, as this stuff evolves, how are those, you know, what, what are those dollars going to migrate over time? It just seems pretty logical to me that those dollars are going to migrate to where they see the 50 to 100 million daily active users. And I, I think the probability that that application ends up on Ethereum first is actually much lower than the market kind of assigns. Just looking at how our views have changed over the last nine months on ETHBTC, I think the market's views can change on Sol, anything else as well. So something, you know, I just kind of need to pull together a bunch of different strands here because I feel like some of the comments have gone one way in a, 
and at other points a different way. But, you know, for instance, earlier, Kyle, when you were saying that you actually had not convinced any developers to move over to Solana, you know, despite all we're saying about the superiority of Rust and about, um, you know, how it's just Solana offers a better experience for developers and blah, blah, blah. Um, why do you think that you didn't convince any developers to go over there? And then yet, you know, it's just funny that you mentioned that at the same time that you're saying, oh, like, you know, the the next really big application for that size, I, you know, 30 to 50 million users, I think will be on Solana. So I'm just kind of curious to hear how you put all that together. Oh, oh, sure. To synthesize that into like five words, the answer is on a global developer basis, Solidity rounds to zero. Like it really does. The number of Solidity developers in the world rounds to zero among all developers. And and so that's why it doesn't matter. And that's why we we actually, the Solana team has stopped trying to, to convince these developers to port over. They, it just doesn't matter. Oh, I see. So since there are just... I, I, to be fair, and to be clear, I'm not saying that the ETH, those ETH developers don't matter as people or what their projects they're working on. I'm just saying in the aggregate universe of total developers, the number of Solidity developers just doesn't matter. Okay. So then then essentially for Solana to take off, it um, needs to just pull in new developers who aren't currently in crypto or... In, into blockchain anything is that yeah or they're disenfranchised with eth or they come from the rust community or i mean there's all kinds of weird way or they or they work at binance or ftx or coinbase they work at or blockfi they work, whatever they work at any of these places and they say oh j- actually best example here is probably jump jump capital right like jump is the largest market maker jump in trading. All, yeah jump trading they're the largest market maker in all of crypto uh, there's, they have the venture arm, which is capital, and then trading is like the main, the main org. Single largest market maker in all of crypto, and they're one of the largest trading firms in the world. They have 900 full-time employees, and they're you know deep in crypto, and they're trading on DeFi. They're trading on every single centralized exchange around the world, and right, they're saying like, okay, we we think we can build a big part of the future using their their new oracle network called Pith that they announced, and like Jump obviously trades on all you know all these assets on all these venues around the world. Obviously, they're going to pipe in a bunch of the data that they're trading from these other places into Solana. Right. And, and so you just look at people like that and, and it just makes you wonder, like, where that where does that thread go? Like, so it's a very I, I a, maybe a counterpoint. And look, I love the jump guys. And, and you know, I, I talk to them regularly. I think they're an amazing company and, and they do a really good job and, and they're amazing market makers. But I think what's interesting is they still have a very TradFi DNA. Right. Like they're they don't quite get everything DeFi. There is an aspect of like understanding it from an ideological perspective. So, you know, when we were talking about this Oracle network that they were going to launch, one of my concerns with this is that they are looking at it from uh, a very different perspective. And maybe that's fine, right? And and the trade-offs and and optimizations they're trying to make are coming from a very different angle of like a TradFi centralized angle and, and not quite rocking maybe what the, the the trade-offs are that that need to exist for smart contract developers to want to adopt something so i think jump is actually a really great example of how someone can maybe get it wrong uh and and you know go okay we're over optimizing for throughput here like these guys are you know in the hft they're, they're like the you know throughput to them is like they can't get you know they're addicted to it right they can't get the they can't get themselves out of that mindset and so i think that the fact that you know, the siren song of Solana attracted jump is kind of indicative of one of the dangers of maybe not having that deep understanding of what the trade-offs are in, in decentralized finance that 
the Solidity engineers who've been working, you know, there for the last four years have like deeply ingrained. Like we understand how these things work and we understand why they work that way. We did all the dumb things two years ago, three years ago, four years ago, and we've learned our lessons. Someone who's coming, you know, from a, a very centralized TradFi perspective is maybe not going to have that understanding and, and may optimize for the wrong things. And I think in the case of Jump and, and this Oracle network on Solana, I think they kind of have. I think they would have been better off building something and, and integrating with existing uh, systems in, in the Ethereum network, like Chainlink, for example. Um, they're going to hate me for saying this, but I, I honestly think that they would have added more value there, um, you know, had they done that. But that's that's my opinion, and I've told them that uh, myself. But I think it's a really good example. Kyle, what do you have to say? There's open questions that, like, we have. Sometimes we iterate on these internally, and sometimes it kind of pours out on, on Twitter of like, what exactly makes DeFi different than CeFi, and like, what are actually the the properties that matter that are different? It's kind of that's kind of the crux of what Kane's getting at. And like, there's a few obvious ones, and there's a few that are maybe more debatable. So, like, the most important ones are obviously non-custodial. Like, probably the single most important one, the fact that you can have contracts hold assets instead of people or organizations is, you know, like kind of paramount to this whole thing. Um, the fact that it, it's transparent is probably, you know, super important and up there. Uh, and the fact that you can kind of trivially rehypothecate collateral between systems is is really important. Beyond that. It's not clear to me that there's any actual differences between DeFi and CeFi on a, on a strictly financial basis. Um, there's obviously engineering differences, especially as it pertains to distributed networks versus central databases. But on like a strictly financial basis, I, I, I think those are the only properties that, that matter, that, that differ. And so if, if that's the case, then it's not clear to me why anything Jump is doing is wrong. But there's maybe an argument that I'm, I'm myopic and, and missing some things and, and there's some other stuff that needs to be considered. Yeah, I, you know, I, I don't think that you're strictly missing something, but I, I think it's it's kind of a question of like what you're optimizing for, right? And I think someone coming from CFI or coming from TradFi just has a mindset of what they're optimizing for. They're optimizing for throughput. They're not necessarily factoring in the social consensus aspects of, of these things, right? And maybe that doesn't matter, but it seems to matter in DeFi. Like there is a component of that that, that is important to, to factor in. Like why do people trust something? You know, is it like genuinely credibly neutral? Like, uh, you know, are we concerned that it's controlled by a single entity? It's all of these considerations, I think, come in to, to you know, what's going on here, right? And I say this as someone who launched a project that was extremely centralized in the early phases. And, you know, the Ethereum community uh, was was very vocal about how terrible that was and what a bad person I was for, for doing that. Um, but, you know, we obviously had a plan to decentralize over time, right? But when you have something that's coming from a very sort of centralized uh, place without maybe a plan to uh, kind of decentralize over time, there's going to be some questions about, is this a place that I want to commit resources to? Because you end up with you know, a situation of platform risk. Um, and I think Ethereum has platform risk, but it's a different type of platform risk than, say, like Facebook. Yeah. Um, I actually also now just want to ask a little bit about DeFi composability, because that was something that obviously at a certain point uh, was a concern. Um, but now that we have all this fragmentation anyway on these different layer twos, I just wonder, does that make it less of a factor than it used to be and make room for these competitors to gain market share? I mean, I, Solana, certainly the fact that it's not 
uh, you know, taking the same sort of approach to scaling and, and having all these multiple layer twos, I think we'll have an advantage in composability, like just by definition, right? Um, you know, if we've got four different credible choices that a DeFi team on Ethereum can choose, right? Between like Arbitrum, Optimism, you know, uh, Polygon or, or, you know, Starkware or whatever, like you've got, you've got these, it just makes it hard, right? We could have a situation where four of the top DeFi projects all end up on different networks. Um, you know, so that's just something that I think we need to, to be aware of. Whereas Solana, you deploy on Solana, you're there. That's it. You're all in the same place. In my conversations with traditional finance people, um, and I, I imagine a lot of canes he's had in the last few years as well, one of the coolest things is they, they see the composability and, and they're like, oh, that, like, it, it, the light bulb clicks very quickly. And, and so I think it's, it's a pretty important thing to them is that like they, they tend to understand relatively quickly that like this is one of those step function improvements that the new system enables that the old system could not do. And it's, it's certainly, I'd say intellectually the coolest of them and, and certainly the most kind of developer centric also of them of kind of those, those native new DeFi properties. Um, and, and Solana clearly preserves those, those the best. And, and so I think there's going to be a real group of people who are drawn to that. I think for the most part, the world does not fully appreciate the degree to which these things are true at the moment. But as um, Ethereum kind of continues to become more heterogeneous across layer one sidechains and layer twos, um, and as Solana just maintains everything organically working in like a single composable shard, th- that will become a lot more obvious to the world in six to 12 months time than it is today. Where today it's kind of mostly just people like us theorizing. That'll be very obvious. And, and I, I suspect a fair number of people will be drawn, will be drawn to that. Um, because they, they will perceive it as the right thing to optimize for. Um, and, and it is a reasonable thing to want to optimize for. And so do you think then we could see kind of like DeFi moving to Solana? Cause so my next question for you was about, you know, obviously we've seen these NFTs taking off in the last several months and, both Solana and Binance Smart Chain are creating their own NFT platforms. And so I, then I started wondering, oh, like, are we just going to see different parts of the crypto ecosystem on each of these different chains? You know, like you know, maybe DeFi moves to Solana or, or, or it grows its own kind of organic DeFi community that is more composable than, um, DeFi and Ethereum is right now or, or something like how do you think that uh, kind of these, uh, uh, more niche interests in crypto will affect this competition? I don't think Ethereum, where it is today, will be displaced in any meaningful way in any foreseeable time horizon. But even for like any particular use case? Uh, well, I mean, the use case is just whales. Like that, that's just already true. <laughs> the retail dollars have peeled off to Polygon and BSC. I, I think the bigger question is, where do you onboard net new users into the system? And, and specifically, you can argue that even the major crypto companies, Binance, Coinbase, FTX, whatever, um, they all have some degree of ideology, ideology into, built in the DNA of the companies based on like the founders and like the VPs of product and, and whatever. Like it's just, there's like, we're all like everyone here owns a bunch of crypto, at, you know, at, outside the job. And like, they all have ideological beliefs about X and Y and Z. But like the, the people who work at like, I don't know, um, let's just say Revolut, for example, or, or whatever, or like a new, new, a new bank uh, in Brazil, like those people for the most part, when they look at crypto, like they're, they're ideological beliefs are, are like 10x if not 100x lower than the people who work at Coinbase and Binance and FCX. And so they really don't care about all the stuff that we like you know, spend our time thinking about. And so 
they're just going to be looking at like, okay, well, like where, where can I bring the users to get, okay, I want like a DeFi, you know, money market and I want some loans and I want over collateralization and I want these risk parameters and I want some USDC and USDT. And I need, like, okay, where do I get? And like, oh, great, Solana. Okay, like, they're just going to not care. It's, I think, extremely rational for, actually, I think the substantial majority of worlds, the world's companies, as they look at crypto, to kind of adopt that view. Kane, do you have an opinion? I, I've said this before on, on Twitter. I think the demand, uh, probably in some Solana thread where, where people were... Um, you're annoyed by something I said, but um, the demand for decentralization doesn't come from users, right? Like users don't care. They just want to consume something that has some benefit to them, right? I think the demand comes from the engineers who, you know, have a belief that not just that they're ideologically aligned with the network, but that there is some practical benefit to being decentralized, right? And that, you know, being more decentralized has uh, has more benefits, right? That, that, but there has to be some practical benefit. If there isn't, like my thesis on Ethereum is that like being on Ethereum will over the long term be better, that there will be practical advantages to being on Ethereum because of the way that it's it's constructed. And if that's not true, then yes, like of course people are just going to go to BSC or, or Solana or whatever. So, you know, when Revolut or, you know, or a bank or like some, you know, some fintech looks at which are the platforms we can deploy on, my my genuine hope is that the practical benefits that I believe that Ethereum has will be obvious there. You know, why why are you going on here versus going on BSC, right? I think for for Ethereum versus BSC, you know, we can kind of laugh about it because it's pretty obvious what the benefits are. Like, you know, I could just run my own database if I'm Revolut. I already have that, right? Um, so you know, it's it, it's kind of obvious that you don't go to BSC, but I think it's less obvious for Solana. And I think that's the concern, I, I guess, that I have. That's to bring it back to, you know, the initial, the, the kind of starting point that like, if the practical benefits of being more decentralized are not 10x better, or at least 5x better or something, then yeah, we could just see people, you know, going to uh, a network that, um, you know, maybe makes that trade off, uh, you know, a little less harshly than, than Ethereum does. So a couple things. First, you know, I really was expecting you guys to disagree more. So uh, it does surprise me how much you are agreeing. We're both but, ETH whales. Tina, so like, it can't, you know, it can't be, uh, it can't be too bad, right? We can't hate each other too much. <laughs> okay. Well, Kane, out of curiosity, I mean, it just sounds like you would never build on Solana, even as you talk about what the benefits would be to building there. So why is that? Like ultimately what it comes down to is I don't just have an ideological alignment to Ethereum. I've got a financial alignment, right? Like I, you know, I've got a big bag of ETH and I'm, I'm here to make ETH as successful as I can. Right. So, and this is, I think the interesting thing about, you know, when you talk about, uh, someone at Coinbase versus someone at Revolut, right? Like, you know, someone at Revolut probably doesn't have a bunch of equity in like Microsoft and isn't like in Revolut advocating for like adopting, you know, Microsoft. Like it's just not, it's a weird thing in crypto where like you have this weird financial alignment of all these different players in the ecosystem. I don't know if it's good or bad. It's just a thing that exists, right? And so, you know, for me, I advocate for Ethereum because I'm both ideologically and financially aligned with it, which also comes back to, you know, an earlier point around, um, I think that's why I'm pushing so hard for us to converge on optimism as the scaling solution. Because I think if we have a canonical L2 solution that is like, you know, the, the consensus solution, it will be much easier for us to compete 
with Solana over the next six to 12 months, right? If we don't, and it is super fragmented and there's no understanding of where I should go, or what I should do, or which place I should be deploying to, I think it'll, it'll erode the value prop of Ethereum much more. So that's why I'm so aggressive about advocating for like, we all need to get on optimism. And even if it's not the perfect solution, it, it's the best solution that we have. And, and it's better that we all converge on something, which is not too dissimilar to SBF's argument of why we should all go to Solana, interestingly, right? So I think we're, <laughs> you know, we're kind of in the same camp there, I guess, just with different conclusions. One thing I will say is, you know, I think however much you advocate that everybody get an optimism, like that boat has already sailed, you know, <laughs> like already there's yeah. a fragmentation. So yeah. let's talk about EIP 1559. Most likely we'll make ETH deflationary. Um, and that could actually obviously give some adrenaline to the price. So do you think that would then change this dynamic that we're seeing where these other chains are taking market share? Because Kane, as you pointed out, you know, you're financially aligned to Ethereum, but obviously BNB and, um, and SOL have really shot up this year. You know, they had lower prices and so it's easier to, to get that big, um, jump. So once we see, um, EIP 1559 go through, do you think that then that could change that dynamic? I think it makes it worse, actually, right? Like I think the price appreciation, yeah, no, it's, the price appreciation of ETH and, and the starting point that you know that most people got in uh, it really makes it hard for that wealth effect to kind of spread, right? Like if you think about the average person who comes into crypto and they want to maybe deploy ten grand of capital, right, which would be pretty high, but let's say they get four ETH, right? Now unit bias is a dumb thing, right? Like if you believe that Ethereum is going to appreciate on a percentage basis more so than Solana or BSC. And you're just purely looking for you know capital appreciation, then you should buy those four ETH. But there is an element of people want some level of meaningful ownership, right? And if I turn up and I can get much more meaningful ownership of something like Solana or BSC, it's not just unit bias. There's there's other factors there where people feel like they just don't have a, a decent stake of the network, right? And so I think that that wealth effect that has really, you know, uh, kind of accelerated for, for BSC and Solana is quite powerful in terms of locking people in. Um, how distributed is it? And, you know, how widely does that go? I don't know the answer to that. Um, but I do think if ETH continues to appreciate and you get to a point where, you know, ETH is 10 grand or 20 grand or something like that, it actually makes it harder for someone new to the space to come in. You know, how, how good do you feel about owning half an ETH? you know, with your 10 grand or something like that? Like how, how, how aligned do you feel to the network if you've got 200 millionth of the network or something like that? Uh, it maybe just doesn't, it doesn't psychologically feel that good. So I think that's something that I, I worry about is, you know, price appreciation could have a, a, a negative effect. The flip side is things like Polygon. And, you know, Arbitrum will obviously launch a token. I'd say, um, you know, Optimism will pretty obviously launch a token. So when these new... Uh, layer two tokens launch. I think that that will provide an opportunity for people to feel like they're getting in early at a lower, you know, price point, lower network value, um, and that they can get alignment with even if they missed the ETH train or a boat or whatever analogy you want to use, that they'll be able to to you know get some alignment with these layer two tokens. And I think we're seeing that with Polygon. Kyle, what do you think? I think the fifteen fifty nine narrative is extraordinarily bullish. ETH over the next minimum six months, probably 12. There's never really been an asset in the world that has a credible claim on net negative issuance. A lot of people will find that very appealing. 
and very intellectually interesting. And then combined, it's got these cool DeFi things happening, um, and then moved to proof of stake. Like it, it, there's th- that that kind of you know six to twelve month horizon for ETH looks looks very very good, which is why we're we're long ETH. The problem, as Kane alluded to, is as the price of ETH USD goes up, Ethereum becomes more expensive to use. And and like even Arbitrum and Optimism, I don't think will be cheap to use. They will obviously be cheaper, a lot cheaper than the ETH mainnet is now. But assuming there's no subsidies, I think you'll still be, you know, two, three, four, five dollar transactions. Mm-hmm. Transactions are not going to be one penny or two pennies. Look again, two dollar transactions are manageable for most people. But like for the people who are putting in a hundred dollars, like that's still not reasonable. People who are putting in, you know, a thousand dollars, they can live with it. But um, for for the, actually the long tail of retail, it just it just doesn't work. It just still doesn't work. It's just like a big logistical challenge. And fifteen fifty nine will short term feel very good, um, but like medium term could be problematic, as Kane alluded to. So Kane, when you wrote your original tweet storm, you might have seen Ryan Sir, formerly of Polychain Capital and the Web Three Foundation, tweeted back at you recommending that you reconsider the quote us versus them mentality of maximalism and consider making synthetics cross-chain. And then he was like, single-chain apps are going to get dusted. It is programmed. So would you ever consider making synthetics cross-chain? And why or why not? I, so I think I have like three draft responses to that. Uh, and I just yeah, I kept not publishing them. Maybe one of them was like a bit too aggressive. And I was like, uh, I'm just not going to go there. Um, I really like Ryan. So um, so I didn't. I was like, I got enough people that... Uh, that I have debates with on Twitter. I don't need to make another uh, Twitter enemy. Um, but his point broadly is true, right? Like, I, I think that, you know, the Ethereum community uh, spends a lot of time talking about, you know, BTC maxis and, and how ridiculous a position it is, right? Um, we need to be very careful to not fall prey to the same kind of thinking, right? Where we just assume that our position is true by default and never challenge it. And I mean, that was part of what that, thread was about that we should be challenging our assumptions and saying like is there something we're missing here the market is sending us a signal we can't just bury our head in the sand and say no the market's wrong we're right right like that's just not the right way to approach this problem um if the market's making bad decisions for the wrong reasons on some level we've still failed because we haven't given the market the information to make the right decisions for the right reasons it's it's a communications issue but our like like regardless of what the reason is, the market is doing something that we don't think is a good idea. So we're wrong, right? Like just by definition, right? Um, and and we need to work out how to fix that problem. Um, so I think Ryan is right to come back to like, would we look at cross chain? I mean, we looked at running on EOS in 2018, right? Like we, you know, we were genuinely considering that. Um, we ended up deciding not to do that and and doubling down on Ethereum, and, and I think that was the right call. Um, but synthetics has very specific challenges around running cross chain. The interesting thing is going from L1 to L2 and running across both chains will make that problem a lot less hard in the future. And, and, you know, we will be able to support other chains much more easily because all the infrastructure will be there. I would imagine most likely it would be other rollups, whether they be ZK or, or other optimistic rollups would be the more likely adjacent place that we would deploy. Um, for the reason that you know Kyle sort of mentioned as well, like we don't have the uh, the infrastructure to spin up a Rust team to go and you know uh, rebuild all of our contracts and deploy on Solana, and and that would be very challenging. We could do it; you can do anything, but it would be a lot of resources to throw at something like that. So I think it's going to be much more likely that EVM compatible 
uh, chains will be where we go in the short term. But we're not ruling anything out. You know, we try not to be. And, and I should also say, like, when I say we, there's a community that decides this stuff. Like, I don't decide it. I'm just uh, someone who says things on Twitter, like at this point, right? So, you know, I, like personally, even if I said we'll never do it, I can't guarantee that that doesn't happen. You know, the community could say, actually, this guy's an idiot. Let's go on Solana tomorrow. Yeah, I think you're. A Twitter bio right now says former benevolent dictator of synthetics. Is that yeah, what it's it true? Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. in the same vein of my previous question, I was just wondering, so obviously, you know, we have this Thor chain that now makes it easy to swap between different chains. And so if we're starting to see things like that, then does that make this question that we've been discussing in this episode moot? Meaning you know, will we eventually just see users seamlessly going to different chains rather than staying in specific ecosystems? And if so, then will that just kind of make this multi-chain world that kind of grows the pie for everyone? And it, you know, it, it's like Ethereum will get bigger, Solana will get bigger, BSC will get bigger, et cetera. And it's not going to be kind of this little, you know, like uh, tribal, <laughs> tribal view of, of crypto. Yeah, I have some non-consensus views on this question. Um, so one of the common things you see is people talk about like, you know, back in the day, like make, in the early internet and software days, uh, like making standards work together and there was competing standards and those people got together and then tried to make interoperation standards and, and there's a whole ton of history of this happening at, at many different layers of the stack for like networking pieces of the stack through like kernel pieces all the way through like the browser and HTML and all this stuff kind of a recurring theme in the history of software. And the biggest takeaway from kind of that seeing that history play out many times across many layers of the stack is that the answer is always interoperability and that it's not one size fits all and that things kind of evolved to deal with the backwards compatibility basically. Like different things evolve at different speeds and then everyone has to realize they play, have to play nice and they all have to talk to each other later on. And a lot of people have, have used that historical framework to say they were very forward with very high probability the future must be multi-chain for that kind of same basic reason. I think that's wrong-ish. It, it is obviously right-ish today. Um, and that, I mean, if you look at our portfolio, like we have big Thor chain position, big Solana position, big ETH position. Like we're, <laughs> we are, are obviously, m money says that we believe that's happening. And I think with basically 100% probability, that will continue to accelerate. The world will become more heterogeneous, both within Ethereum and outside of Ethereum. Um, over the next minimum 12 months and probably 24 to 36. But, but like there are real costs to having multiple chains. Uh, and those costs are not just like developer, the DevX costs or like some standards organizations costs. It's actually user costs in terms of forms of gas and the form of latency. Um, the moment you do anything cross chain, you guarantee are increasing gas costs and you were guaranteed increasing latency costs. And those two dynamics did not exist for all kind of previous iterations of these types of like what I'll call standard interoperability kind of standard battles, at least not in such an explicit way where the cost is not measured in billionths of a penny, but where the cost is measured in like dollars. That's a really, really big difference. And so being able to stay synchronous, being able to stay composable, I, I think is a, is a lot more important than uh, the kind of historical perspective would, would lend you to believe. Um, so that was my long rant. I'll, I'll end it there. Kane, do you have a, an opinion? <laughs> and, and like broadly, I agree, right? Like I think 
Yeah, I, I think there's a reason why we're not talking about Cosmos, for example, right? And and there's a reason why we're not maybe, you know, maybe it's a bit unfair to Polkadot, right? I think, but still like, you know, this kind of architectural decision of creating all of these little zones and having them all talk to each other. Um, I just don't know how, how sort of credible that is as a, a long-term solution, right? That's why, that's why, again, I think Solana, um, you know, going down this path of making trade-offs that, you know, ensure composability for, you know, the longer term uh, versus, you know, things like sharding and, and you know, various optimistic roll-ups in different flavors, you know, competing with one another. Uh, I think it's, it, it has the best chance of unseating Ethereum, right? Like it's, it's the thing that concerns me the most, right? Because it's a good pathway. And, you know, when you get to start from scratch, three years after someone else has done a whole bunch of dumb things, right? You can learn lessons from that and you can make optimizations and improvements, right? Um, it's just a reality, right? Like, you know, we're still very early. Like we don't have enough uh, traction and momentum as an entire ecosystem to say that, you know, any one particular thing is going to work and, and continue to exist, right? So um, that doesn't mean that I don't think Ethereum can fix some of the issues. And, and you know, I think some of the trade-offs that it makes are the right trade-offs. Um, no, they're challenging, but I do think that uh, ultimately we will probably converge on a network that people, you know, will will use because of that composable factor, right? I don't think we're going to have these weird zones, and I think there'll be a, a way to kind of, you know, aggregate them all seamlessly, uh, you know, potentially like um, like we've seen in the AMM space and in, in DeFi, where you get these aggregator layers sitting on top, but they have to be in the same place for that aggregation to work, right? It's really hard to aggregate across these different zones because of the cost and, and latency that it introduces and, and the lack of composability. So I just think that uh, that we will end up in a situation where, you know, most things, the vast majority of liquidity, you know, it, it won't be winner take all, but it'll be winner take most. And and most of the liquidity will end up in a single place. And that will be the, the place where people go. My hope is that that's an optimistic roll up on Ethereum. Um, but I can see a world where that's not the case as well. Interesting. Yeah. Speaking of the aggregators, I did notice, you know, one inch is on uh, Binance Merchant, but I don't believe it's on Solana. So that's kind of interesting given everything that we've said so far. Um, well, we're well over time, but uh, there were just kind of a number of different topics I wanted to hit. So I just wanted to make sure to ask questions about those, those items. Um, where can people learn more about each of you and your work? Yeah, so it's easy to find me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is just my name. So it's at Kyle Samani. Um, and then Multicoin has a blog. We publish stuff every now and again. Our website is multicoin.capital. Uh, for me, Twitter mainly. Um, my handle is K-A-I-Y-N-N-E. Um, and I publish stuff on the uh, Synthetics blog as well, predominantly. So that's blog.synthetics.io. All right, great. Well, thank you both so much for coming on Unchained. Yeah, that was really fun. Hey, Laura, this was fun. I'm glad we got to explore all these these really subtle issues. <laughs> all right, well, we'll see how this all plays out and maybe I will have you guys back and uh, 
we can do the throwdown at that point. Okay. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today to learn more about Kane and synthetics and to learn about Kyle and Multicoin. Check out the show notes for this episode. Sign up for my email newsletter where you can learn how to make pre-orders for my book, The Cryptopians, Idealism, Greed, Lies, and the Making of the First Big Cryptocurrency Craze. You can sign up right on UnchainPodcast.com. Unchain is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Anthony Yu, Daniel Ness, and Mark Murdoch. Thanks for listening. 